Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of the True Crime All the Time Unsolved podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson, and with me, as always, is my partner in true crime, Mike Gibson. Gibby, how are you? Hey, Mike. I'm doing really well today. I'm glad to hear it, man. And I'm excited. You're always excited. Yeah. But I do think it's exciting for us when we get in the studio, right? Because we've been researching it all week. We've been putting clips together. We've been, you know, pouring into all the research. And then finally, the culmination for us is usually Friday night after work. Right. We're sitting down across from each other. I'm just glad to get it out of my head. Get Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know you. You're like researching all of this gory stuff and then you're like trying to purge it yep. after we do the episode. But sometimes that's uh, easier said than done. So we got to start out with some new Patreon supporters. So want to give a shout out to Aaron Mishi, Maggie, Marie Lassiter, Kirby Raycraft, Katie Turner, and Lyle Whitset, who actually supported us through PayPal, which is a great way to do it as well. Sure it is. We appreciate everyone. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, everybody. Uh, not not only the, the new people that have just started supporting us, but also the people that continue to support us month after month. It allows us to you know keep doing what we're doing, help pay the bills, and keep putting out more content. We love it, and we appreciate it. Anybody that would like to support us can do it through Patreon. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash true crime all the time. Now make sure you check out our website, truecrimeallthetime.com. You'll find all of our contact information. You know, follow us on Facebook. We've got the new unsolved Facebook that I don't know everybody knows about the unsolved Facebook page. We've separated it now as well as the unsolved Twitter handle, you know, at TCAT unsolved, where really before we were doing everything through the true crime all the time page and Twitter. Now it's completely separate. So if you haven't followed us, go out there, do that. We love the interaction. Yeah. If they're on Twitter, if they look hard enough, they're fine. Gibby, Gibby's Twitter. <laughs> And follow Gibby. You can he follow loves it. Gibby. Gibby will respond. That's one thing I will say about us, and I'm sure other podcasters are really good at it as well. But you know, we've tried to set out from the very beginning because we we weren't really prepared, were we, Gibbs, for the amount of interaction? No, we weren't. It came on <laughs> like an avalanche, much yeah. quicker than what we ever expected. But very thankful, that's for sure. Yeah, but we love it. Yeah, I mean, met some really good friends. Yeah, everybody's been great, very supportive, and we get some great show ideas too. And it's okay, you can pick on me. Yeah, pick on us. We love it. Yeah, you know, I've been called the dumbass, and yeah, it's kind of. Uh, you can imagine what I've been called then. It's kind of. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you want to say? It's. I look at it as a, a term of endearment. Yeah. And I'm totally fine with that. Gibby knows he's a suspect in multiple states. He I loves do. to be ribbed about it. He's not really. I know there's there's probably people out there thinking, Wondering. is Gibby really a suspect in multiple states? They're probably like, why does he have an attorney on retainer? <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I haven't talked about in a while is while you're at our website, you know, if you're doing any Amazon shopping, make sure you click through the Amazon banner. 
it doesn't cost you a dime. Yeah, and you make... can still use your own. You, you do your normal log on, right? Once you go through the link, yep. you can use still use your Prime membership. And yep, yeah, it's perfect. The price does not change just based on the fact that you went through our link. All it does is it lets Amazon know that you were referred through our website and they kick us back a small portion of your purchase price. And by small, I mean very, very small, but it does help, right? Every little thing helps to pay the the cost associated with putting out the podcast. And then last but not least, if you haven't done so and you love the show, please take the time to go out and rate and review us on iTunes or whatever Android app you may use to access the show that really goes a long way into helping other people find the show. And it helps us kind of climb up the charts and, and you know, all of that stuff is, is, is good for us and it's free, right? It doesn't cost a dime other than your time, two minutes of your time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's something that we'd ask you to do. If you like the show, help us out with that. All right, Gibbs. So we got all of that kind of business out of the way. What are we talking about, man? Well, we just wrapped up TCAT, right? So if you, if you haven't jumped over to our main podcast yet, make sure you do. Cause we did a really good one tonight. We did it on the Wichita massacre. Yeah. So we went back to Wichita, Kansas. Yep. Uh, which where we did the BTK and now we're, we've tackled the Wichita massacre and um, it's a good one. It's, it's gruesome. I'm not going to lie. It's definitely gruesome, but, and we tried not to spare any of the details. Yeah. And I know you guys like that stuff out there. Yeah, People do like the details. If you didn't, haven't jumped over there yet after this one, jump on over and take a listen. Just keep jumping. That's what Gibby wants you to do. Jump, 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 jump. So tonight on Unsolved, we're talking about the Jennings 8. And you'll also see this as the Jeff Davis 8. And so Jennings is a town in Louisiana. Jefferson Davis is a parish in Louisiana. So they kind of use the term interchangeably, but they both refer to to this series of unsolved murders in the city of Jennings population around 10,000 or so in Jefferson Davis, Paris, Louisiana. All these occurred between the years of 2005 and 2009. And the case centers around these eight women whose bodies were found all different ages different races, but they all had some similarities and they all had some connections. And that's part of what we're going to talk about Gibbs, right? As, as we go through this. So Gibbs, I mean, these unsolved killings, they did draw a lot of media attention and back then and have drawn a lot of media attention. I mean, obviously in the local area of Jennings, right? This this was huge news, but it went as far as the New York Times, Rolling Stone did, you know, some stuff on it. There was a book out called Murder in the Bayou, and 
a lot of people now I think it's 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 been proven that it's not, but a lot of people thought that this was the impetus for the HBO series True Detective. Yeah. And a lot, of, a lot of speculation. Yeah, there was a lot of speculation. I, I do think at one point they interviewed the either the producer or the director or somebody, and he said, no, it wasn't. But there's still a lot of people that think that there are elements of this case. Because True Detective is set down in that area, and there's a lot of similarities. And, and we're talking season one, right? right? I loved season one. Season two, yeah, it's all right. But season one was amazing. If anybody hasn't watched True Detective, I highly recommend it. Now, one of the things that's come up in this case from the very get-go is how the police handled the investigation. And we're going to talk a lot about that. This is more than people saying they're not putting enough effort into it. Right, Gibbs? Right. I mean, there's accusations of actual police misconduct, um, and that's almost not as strong enough word, I think, for what we're going to talk about. But a lot of that, you know, may have contributed to lost or missing evidence. And I'm using missing in your air, air quotes in my air quotes that I love to do that nobody can see. Um, and again, there's multiple suspects. We're going to talk about the suspects. And one of the questions that comes up a lot is, is this a serial killer case, right? Did one person kill all eight of these women or because of the situation that these women found themselves in, could it just be that a lot of women were murdered in this span of time? And the fact that they all had these type of connections doesn't necessarily mean that their murderer was connected. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Okay. You know, I need that validation. Thank you. I think the craziest part of it may be that there's law enforcement people and law enforcement witnesses that have gone as far as naming people from law enforcement as suspects in this case. So there's an element here of not only police misconduct, but to a level of could they have been involved? When the last light warms the rocks and the rats. Jennings is a small town on the edge of Cajun country. The paved streets give way to dirt roads as you hit the rice fields and crawfish ponds on the outskirts. These farmlands should be peaceful, but in Jennings, the roads lead to dark reminders of the horrible things that happened to eight young women here. They all knew each other, used drugs together, and one by one, they all became murder victims. Their bodies were dumped along these rural roads, some in the weeds, some half-submerged in canals. At a few spots, crime scene tape has been replaced by stark memorials. Oh, I love that music. Love it. That true detective music. Is oh, it? it makes me want to go watch it again, man. <laughs> but 
I, I like that clip. I like it, especially because the music, but I like the clip because he does a really good job of kind of setting it all up for where we're going. Right. He talks about the connections. He talks about the drugs and, and this is, these are all things that are going to be central themes to this case. So Gibbs, I think we have to jump right into the victims. Yeah, I think we do because this case is a lot of this case is about the victims. Yeah. Now keep in mind when we start talking about these victims that the city of Jennings like like we mentioned already, it's it's like population under ten thousand. It's a really small, close knit community. Everybody knows everybody, either related to them, right? Somehow, everybody is aware of everybody's business. I think that's a very important point. So the first victim, Loretta Lynn Chason, was twenty eight years old. Now her body was found in a rural but public area on May 20th of 2005. And this was just a few days after she was last seen. A fisherman discovered her body floating in a canal a few miles southwest of Jennings. So the the location where her body was found was just north of a bridge on Highway 1126. Or 1126, I don't know how they say it. She was partially clothed, had no shoes on. Her body was in a pretty advanced state of decomposition. And I think this, we're going to find this, right, Gibbs, in some of these victims. Yeah, it's kind of a repetitive finding. Yeah, and what it causes is it makes it really hard to identify the body. And it also makes it hard as they go about trying to collect evidence, right? They can't even determine cause of death right away just because of the state that the body is in. Now you got to figure this is May in Louisiana. I imagine it's probably pretty hot. Yeah. Humid. Humid. Decomposition is going to happen much more rapidly than it would if, If we were talking about a case in, well, like we talked about in another case in Wichita in December, right? You're going to have, that's going to be a lot different rate of decomposition. Now, toxicology reports would indicate high levels of drugs. We're talking cocaine and a lot of alcohol in her system when she died. Now, there's always speculation in in these types of cases. And the early speculation about her death, and I I don't know that I know why this is, Gibbs, or where it comes from, but Mm -hmm. it was that Loretta may have been killed by Mexican migrant workers after she allegedly robbed a group of these workers in town. A little bit of background about Loretta. You know, she was married to a man named Murphy Lewis. She had two children. And by all accounts, she was a loving mother, wife and daughter. Now, getting back to your comment, Gibbs, about, you know, how small the city is and how everybody is either related to each other or knows somebody that's related or knows each other. You know, one of... 
Loretta's children is a cousin to one of the other victims that we're going to talk about. Right. So they, they had the same grandmother. Right. That's what you were saying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and you're going to see this throughout. Right. So, so many connections in not only drug use, some with, you know, prostitution, but all of them with friends and family and, you know, just, it's amazing the amount of connections between all the victims. But again, it goes back to that small town, right? Yep. I worked a case that was due to narcotic pills being trafficked from Houston to Jennings. During that investigation, I had, I was at the house where the pills were being distributed. That's when our informant says a fight broke out between two men. During the scuffle, each saying they would tell what the other had done. So after that went on, I grabbed one of them and walked to the side of the house with him. And that's when he said what had happened to the first victim. Loretta. Loretta Chasson. That's what they meant when they said, I'll tell on you, but no, I'll tell on you. They both actually had something to do with it. He said him and a group of girls were porting, and he was prescribed to methadone wafers, which he kept feeding to Loretta Chasson. After a while, she collapsed. He wraps her in some blankets. Then he goes back and continues porting with the other girls. He went back and checked on her a few times, he said, but at 2 a.m. is when he realized she had died. She had OD'd from the medicine. Those other girls, some of those other girls were hoarding with them. That's when he says the men disposed of Loretta's body, dumping her in the canal. So the next body to be found was that of Ernestine Patterson. She was 30 years old, and her body would be found on June 18th, 2005. She had been missing since June 16th. And her body would be found in a canal, just like Loretta, just a couple of miles southeast of Jennings. Now, with Ernestine, her throat was slit, and the toxicology report showed, again, that she had high levels of drugs and alcohol both in her system. There's not a lot of information out there about her. Uh, you know, she did have a husband and two sons and two daughters. But unlike some of the other victims, there's not quite as much information known about her. So then Gibbs, the next victim is Christine Lopez. Now, Christine was only 21 years old. She was last seen on March 6, 2007. So now we're jumping a couple years now. So about 12 days after she was last seen, a fisherman discovered her completely nude body in a canal. You know, again, very similar to Loretta, discovered by a fisherman in a canal. Now, this canal was in a very rural area off of Highway 99, and this is about 10 miles south of the town of Welsh. So it was said that investigators felt her body had been placed in that location, but killed elsewhere. Well, but that makes a lot of sense, right? Is she going to be killed in the canal? Yeah, exactly. I mean... She's going to be killed somewhere, driven... 
yeah, drive them and dump them. Or, drive on the bridge and dump yeah. somebody over a bridge or, or roll them into the canal. You're not going to kill them in the canal. Yeah, I mean, unless they thought maybe she was on a boat and they shot her. I don't know. No, shit. Yeah, I, I don't it know. doesn't really make sense the way they say that, but that's what the investigator said. Now, Kristen, she was reported missing by Tracy Chasson. And Tracy is the cousin of the first victim, Loretta Chasson. And she was reported missing on 315 of 2007. So Tracy was also Kristen's girlfriend. Lover. Oh, okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure what you meant by girlfriend. So, Gibbs, I think her body, very similarly to Loretta's, was in a state of composition that was just way too far advanced for them to determine any type of cause of death. I believe they thought that asphyxia was the suspected cause of death. So, Mike, even on her toxicology report, it came back with high levels of drug and alcohol, just like Loretta's. And I assume that we're going to see this, you know, and not just this, right? A lot of these uh, victims that we're going to talk about, we're going to be talking about some of these same things. Oh, I think so. I think it's just a repetitive. Le- the decomposition because of the way that the bodies were disposed of and the heat and all of that. The toxicology reports are going to be very similar in a lot of these, but you got to talk about them, right? Because it all plays into it. Now, one thing I want to talk about, Gibbs, is these connections Yeah, that we keep mentioning, right? So, so Tracy is the cousin of Loretta, but also the girlfriend of Kristen. And then in, Kristen is going to be related to some victims that come down the line. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Two of them. So Kristen is also the cousin to Brittany Ann Gary, which is another victim that we're going to talk about here shortly. So again, small towns, you know, big families, I guess. All right, Gibbs. So let's jump to the third victim that is found. And her name is Whitney Dubois. She was 26 years old. Now, Whitney was last seen on May the 10th, 2007. So just a couple months after Kristen Lopez. This is Saturday morning on May 12th, around 730, when a couple discovers a nude female body lying in the roadway near the intersection of Bobby and... Earl Duhon Road. Now, this is a departure, right? Because we've been talking about canals. Yeah, this is the first time now we're on dry land, right? And right in the middle of a road near, you know, an intersection. Now, it's a rural area about three miles outside of Jennings. Not heavily traveled, probably mostly used by farmers and, you know, locals, locals, but still. Big difference of dropping a body in a canal versus just dropping somebody right out in the middle of the road. So that means something to me. Now at the time, the sheriff's office, they didn't have any missing persons reports filed with their office. So Dubois was identified through fingerprint records on file 
basically because she had prior drug and forgery charges. Again, we have to talk about decomposition. It was so advanced. They had a heck of a time determining her cause of death. But much like Kristen Lopez, it was suspected that she was killed through asphyxiation. And just like the others, the toxicology reports come back and they indicate a high level of both alcohol and drugs in her system. Now we have to talk about how Whitney was last seen and where, because this is kind of brings in a, a, a central character to this whole case. Yeah. I think, you know, we're, as, as we get into all this, we're going to keep hearing this name pop up a few times. So she's last seen at Frankie Richard's house in Jennings. And Frank, like you said, Frankie Richard's a name that's going to come up throughout. And we're actually going to hear from Frankie Richard later on. And when we start talking about suspects and I was claimed that Whitney was only there at his house for a very brief amount of time and that she left on foot prior to that. She had spent maybe an hour at her grandmother's house, which is one street over from where Frankie lived. The sheriff of Jefferson Davis parish would come out and say that he believed Whitney was probably dead for a few days before her body was placed where it was found, meaning she didn't die there, which again, makes sense to me. I don't know why you'd kill somebody in the middle of the road. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Just like I don't think you'd kill somebody in a canal, but you might kill somebody and then transport their body and leave them in these places. Yeah, I think it was they were good dumping grounds. But this is the first time, I believe, Gibbs, that they come out and publicly state. Now, they might have been thinking it, but now they're publicly stating that Whitney's death might be connected to the three previous deaths. And the thought is they've got a serial dumper on their hands. But they had no evidence that it was the same person. But again, there's a lot of coincidences to these these first four. So I think that's... Now, I don't know what they mean by serial dumper. And I have a feeling I might get a meme with somebody in a toilet and it says serial <laughs> dumper. But I hope you do. Serial dumper. So obviously they're talking about the dumping of the bodies. Yeah. But that person, it's not like they're just finding dead bodies and dumping them. Right. To so me, if you're going to call them a serial dumper, why wouldn't you say then it's got to be a serial killer? Yes. Who dumps bodies? bodies. Yeah. I don't know why you'd come if out you and don't say think it's a serial killer. Then maybe it's just somebody that works for an organization that takes the dead bodies for that whoever killed in that organization and dumps the bodies. And that's the serial dumper. Yeah. So serial dumper is, is strange to me again, like you said, why not come out and say serial killer unless they had reason to believe that the people that were doing the killing or the person that was doing the killing was different from the dumper. Yeah. Uh, And that, that makes no sense. 
Or they were they were afraid to use the word serial killer, right? Yeah. Well, serial dumper doesn't sound very good either. No, but it doesn't sound as. You got you got somebody that's just running around dumping dead, dead bodies. bodies all over. Well, beware of the serial dumper. <laughs> if you die, he's he might gonna, come by and get you. He's going to get you. Yeah. So when we talk about connections, we got we have to talk about the fact that Whitney was friends with Brittany Gary, just like Kristen Lopez was a cousin to Brittany Gary. Now, Brittany Gary, we haven't gotten to yet, but she's she's a victim. Uh, she's one of the eight. But it's just hard to keep the, all this straight because of of the weird connections between everybody. And Whitney had, you know, siblings that were basically left to wonder and still to this day are wondering what happened to their sister. The only thing they know is that she was found naked on a dirt road in an advanced state of decomposition. Whitney loved music, uh, loved people. She was a people person. Whitney was a great people person. Uh, she had goals till the drugs took her. And when the drugs took her, she had no more goals. We tried many times to get her off the street. We tried and we tried. And she always said, brother, I can take care of myself. I can take care of myself. And I kept trying to tell her. So let's talk about the next victim. She was Laconia Chantel Brown. She was 23 years old. Now her body was found on May 28th, 2008 on East Racka Road. Her throat was slit. Her body was doused with bleach. So, I mean... That's something that somebody wants to do when they want to try to clean up a scene, right? I mean, get rid of evidence. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. There's no reason to put bleach on a body other than you think it's going to wash away or get rid of evidence that would tie you. Yeah. Now, she was also called Muggy by her friends and family. Muggy, she was the only victim that was actually found by a law enforcement officer. All the others were found by private citizens. Even more interesting is that she was found around 2 a.m. in the morning on a road leading to the police shooting range. So part of the the interesting facts about this being the police officer shooting range was that some of the statements online right out on the web was that Maybe she was taken to the shooting range, and that's actually where she was killed. Um, and some, you know, th- there's some speculations that the police were involved in this, right? All these, all these murders. Um, and what they don't mention is that she was one of the few that her body was actually still warm when she was found. So we're going to get into the whole. And we mentioned it up front, but we're going to talk about it later. The fact that there are a lot of people that believe that the police are, I don't i don't know if they're directly involved, but that the police have some type of involvement in some of these. Now, the fact that her body was warm, that definitely means something. 
right? She wasn't in the same state of decomposition as every, as the rest of the victims. So that would mean to me that she was either, well, number one, she was killed within a, a, a relatively short period of time in relation to when her body was dumped. But does that also mean that she probably was not, was killed not very far away? And maybe that's leading to the speculation of the shooting range. And it could be. And also that the fact that they poured bleach all over her, right? I mean, that's a quick way, like you mentioned, as we just talked about, to try to erase some evidence, right? So I guess if you're in a hurry, I guess that's one way, since they couldn't make it over to the canal and dump her in the water, right? So they dump her, not on a well-known road, but it's a road back to a law enforcement shooting range. But again, so these ones where they're left in a road, why? You know, these are rural areas. They could get off the beaten path just a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be that difficult to drive another, what, quarter mile? Go, You know, go back in the woods a little bit? Yeah. I mean, if you're not being pursued by anybody, you're at your own pace. Why... Why put them out on the middle of the right. road? Right. That, there's something in, that means something to me because I feel like it doesn't have to be done. It's like somebody wants them to be found. Are they trying to send a message to maybe the other girls? You know? Are they trying to... Right. I'm, again, we're, we're speculating some, but it to me it does mean something. Because you and I cover a lot of cases and... Most people go to great lengths to hide bodies. They don't want the body found right right away. Yeah, I mean, and you think in that environment, there, like we said several times, there's got to be a better way if you wanted to if you wanted to dispose of a body, right? I mean, you're you're in the bayou, man. I mean, you got swamps everywhere, right? Alligators, yeah. I mean, eat, eat bodies, but. It leads me to believe that this was done on purpose. Sure. I believe that too. For a very specific reason. We just don't know what that reason is. Right. We can speculate all we want, but we don't know. Now, she was also friends with Brittany Gary. It seems like a lot of the, a lot of these victims were friends with Brittany. A lot of ties to Brittany Gary. Yeah. Now, what's disturbing about this case is that she apparently had begun to fear for her life. In days prior to her death, that she she actually stated this to her family members. But we don't know who she was fearful of? We don't. We don't. She was just, you know, stating to her family that she had concerns and she feared for her and she feared for her life. And we're going to hear some other victims say that um, down the pike here, that they too had you know, fears for their life, but they wouldn't go into details because they didn't want to put anybody else in their family in jeopardy because of being such a small community that they didn't want whoever they were fearful of knowing that the family members potentially could know what they know. Yeah, see, I, I think that's part of what fascinates me about this case. The inner interconnection between all of this and the similarities between the victims. And now you're saying, you know, there's a number of them that were telling their family members, Hey, you know, I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Maybe I know something I shouldn't know. 
That's and I think that's a lot of what fuels the speculation about you know, is it related to drugs, right? They know something about somebody that is kind of up the food chain dealing with drugs or do they know something related to the police that would cause, you know, harm to these people in power? Right. That's where all the speculation comes from. So the next victim is Crystal Zeno. She was 24 years old and her body was found September 11th, 2008. So right around what? Three and a half months after Muggy was found and some hunters would find crystal on a levee in a wooded area near an irrigation canal just south of Jennings. She had last been seen on August 29th. So she was missing for almost two weeks before her body was found. Again, advanced state of decomposition She'd been there quite some time. Very, very tough to determine the cause of death. But just like the others, the coroners suspected that she was killed by asphyxiation. Now, the one thing about Crystal is, you know, they found her on September 11th. But it took two months to identify who she was. So that they didn't even know it was Crystal Zeno for a couple of months. Now, Crystal went by the name of Shay. And just like some of the other victims, she knew Brittany Gary. And another connection with her is that she was married and her husband had been known to hang out with the husband of Kristen Lopez. So Crystal worked at Sonic in Lake Arthur you know, it was said that she liked to fish and sing and, and she really enjoyed listening to music. Everybody said she was a people person and that she loved spending time with her family and friends. And she had a daughter as well that she loved spending time with. When the when you read the accounts about Crystal, they were all very positive. People really liked her. All right, so... The next victim is Brittany Gary. And we've mentioned Brittany quite a few times because she, she was only 17 years old, but she was friends with, you know, a lot of these other victims. Now, Brittany would go missing on a Sunday. It was November 2nd, 2008. So just a couple of months after crystal. Now, Brittany had been walking about five blocks to the family dollar store in Jennings. And this is where she was last seen on surveillance cam at 5.30 p.m. at this family dollar store. She went in, she purchased some minutes for her cell phone. So a search party was put together to look for Brittany. And the search party was focused on this three-mile radius near the East Racker Road because it was within this radius where, you know, five of the victims had already been dumped either on roadways or in the canals. Like we mentioned, 
the search, some of the searchers were on horseback, some were on four wheelers, some were even on foot walking through the brush. So one of the searchers found Brittany on Keystone Road, which is about four miles south of the city of Roanoke. Again, her body was in such an advanced state of decomposition that they couldn't determine the exact cause of death, but the coroner suspected asphyxiation. So again, in every case, we've said this. So that's a tie-in. Now, we go back to the family dollar because Brittany had gone in, they know this, she'd gone in and purchased minutes for her cell phone. But she hadn't taken a call in nearly a week and they knew that her voicemail was full. Right, so we know Brittany was scared because she had told her mother, Teresa Gary, who gives, I think we mentioned before, Teresa Gary knew all of the victims. Yeah, she did. And Brittany and the family were connected in some way to all six of these prior victims. You know, Brittany's best friend was Muggy Brown. And even the second victim, Ernestine Patterson, worked at Wendy's and her boss was Teresa Gary. So, you know, back to Brittany being scared. She had told her mother that she was fearful for her life. And I think this is the point where we have to talk about, you know, these people are using drugs. They're hanging out with other people that use drugs. There's no doubt about this. So this fear comes from a multitude of places, right? Now, the other thing is that the police are using some of these girls as informants. So the fear comes from the police. The fear comes from their friends, the other girls. So they're all, everyone's looking to get their next fix and they're getting to the point where they don't even feel like they can trust their so-called friends anymore because they're afraid that their friends who are also looking for their next fix could be the ones to turn them into some of these higher level drug dealers and say, Hey, this person is informing to the police. Right. And their friend might do that in order to get drugs. Sure. And then obviously whoever they're saying that about their life is in immediate danger. So again, I've, to me, that is a fascinating part of this case of the connection of the girls, the connection of the girls to the drug dealers, the connection of the girls to the police as informants. Right. And then add the extra part where it's been said that some of, some of the police are working with some of the drug dealers for protection. Right. So what a circle again, that vicious. So you got, like you said, everything you just said, plus add that the fact that you got some bad police, potentially bad police working with the local dealers. You mean where the dealers would pay the police to look the other way? Absolutely. Okay. Man, I'm telling you, 
There, there is a lot here to unravel. All right. So the so the last victim is Nicole Guillory, and she was twenty six. So Nicole went missing on August sixteenth of two thousand and nine. Her body was found on August nineteenth, and she was found off of Interstate ten. Now Interstate ten was a major highway. It's the same highway that was later said by the police that was used to traffic tons of drugs in and out of the state. So her body was also found heavily decomposed. And just like the other ones, they really couldn't determine a type of death, how she, how it occurred. But again, they did say that she was most likely strangled. Asphyxiation has come into play in all eight, right? They're not certain, right? But that's the coroner's best guess and all eight that we've talked about. So that's a pretty strong tie. I think so. The cause of death, to me, all being the same, that means something. Yeah, and also the tie-in that majority of them, the the toxicology reports all come back with drugs or and or, you know, high levels of alcohol in their system. Well... And again, we're always really careful in talking about the victims, but we have to say that there's no doubt that these victims were all drug users, right? You, we know that from the toxicology reports. It's part of the reason why they all were connected and they all knew each other. You know, they were part of the same, I don't know if you want to call it party scene, but the same drug scene. Yeah, I think that's safe to say that. Now, Nicole had been arrested and convicted of possession of crack cocaine in 2007, and she'd served 20 months in prison for that. But she actually had a long list of arrests dating all the way back to 2001. And it was, I mean, the list included theft, burglary, aggravated assault, She had a charge of aggravated assault of a police officer, which that's usually a big deal. Mm -hmm. Resisting arrest. Of course, she had possession of drug paraphernalia and even simple criminal damage and battery and and some, you know, more simple charges, too. But so she had she had a pretty long history. Now, most of these cases were dismissed. I'm not sure why, but. I'm assuming lack of evidence. So she didn't, she had a, she was arrested a lot, but she wasn't convicted a lot. Let's put it that way. So just like some of the other victims, Nicole also, she feared for her life to the point. She even told her mom, you know, don't make me a birthday cake. I won't be alive to eat it. I mean, you gotta be pretty scared to say, don't make me a cake for my birthday. Because I won't be around for it, Mom. Well, she she had to have known something to be that scared, right? She knew that somebody she was on somebody's list. She had done something. She had crossed someone. Had to have. Yeah, to the point she had four kids and she placed them with some other family members. So you know that something was up because we have kids. We wouldn't move our kids out of our house if we, unless we thought something bad was going to happen. Oh, and, and what mom would, right, unless they were 
fearful that something was going to happen to the kids. You're not separating yourself from the kids. Right. But she went as far as saying she wouldn't tell her mom anything. And she said she didn't want to because she was afraid that if her mom knew the information that she knew that she would be in danger as well. So again, the problem is Gibbs. We don't know what she knew. I'd love to know. Yeah. I mean, that's the big mystery here, right? It is the mystery. There's no way for us to know. If we knew those little secrets that they didn't want to tell their own parents, I'm sure it leads to the killer. Yeah, I would agree. So, Because there's a person that is making them fearful or a group or whatever, and that would ultimately, I think, lead you to who the killer or killers were. I got a tip from a source that all the victims had gone to this particular house. I was watching the house. I wanted to see who came, who went, what was going on, see if I seen any uh, type of pattern of activity. And as it turned out, Nicole Guillory walked out of the house and began walking up and down the street. It all happens here. This is actually the street where I caught Nicole Guillory on. And there's the brown house where she sat on the steps at, coming up to the left. That's the party house. We have a source that puts every last victim right there. So this is a very interesting little clip because this is a private investigator that was hired by some of the victims' families. And he actually indicates that he has tape of Nicole Guillory before she went missing. But the more important thing to me is this party house because he indicates that there's evidence that all eight of these women were at one time at this party house. Now I'm assuming to get drugs. That's that makes the most logical sense. It does, but it ties them to this one place. So for me, Gibbs, does that mean that the killer of all eight of these women Assuming that one person or entity killed all eight is was also connected somehow to this party house. And I think the answer is yes. I, I do too. If you go on that theory, then I would say yes. Yes. I would I would agree. All right, so we've talked about all the victims. Now we've got to get into connections and we've we've talked about some of this we have and like we said there's so many different connections between victims suspects police uh the victims all knew each other they were all from the same side of the tracks in jennings you had some that were related by blood we talked about like cousins and and things like that some of them lived together You know, Brittany Gary actually lived with Crystal Zeno shortly before her death. You know, and as we've talked about, the victims all shared a lot of the same characteristics. You know, they were poor. There were a lot of them. We haven't talked about this, but there were a lot of the victims that had a history of mental illness. They all had some type of history of drug abuse. And some of the victims 
were sex workers that had criminal records, right? So a lot of similarities here. They walked streets, um, visiting a lot of people up and down one certain area, which we call their high-risk area, south side of town. Yeah, they were party girls, you know. Um, they were into drugs. Um, they were into this certain lifestyle, and that's what they knew. They've all frequented the same places, the same house, the same location, and they all knew each other. So, Gibbs, in 2005, a drug dealer named Leonard Crochet was killed by the police. He was unarmed, and he was shot, and several of the victims, the the, the would-be victims, were present when this shooting occurred. Kristen Lopez was there. And Whitney Dubois' baby daddy was there. She wasn't there herself. But I guess the way we're tying this in, right? So there was a grand jury investigation of this shooting of the drug dealer, Leonard Crochet. And it was determined that there was no probable cause to charge the police with negligent homicide. But where the conspiracy theory starts to come in is that witnesses start coming forward and saying that they believe that the police are involved in the killing of the Jennings 8 or the Jeff Davis 8, however you want to say it, because of what they knew about this shooting of Leonard Crochet and the corresponding drug bust that was going on when he got shot, right? So it's this whole big thing. Now, what we do know is that the eight victims began to disappear shortly after this ha- this occurred, right? So the speculation, if you want to go down this rabbit hole, which we always do, is that the police shot a drug, an unarmed drug dealer. There was a grand jury investigation about to happen. And some of the people that may have had knowledge that would have been harmful to the police started to disappear and ultimately be found dead. Now to fuel that conspiracy fire, there were two detectives who were working to piece this connection together. The connection of the eight and the police officers that had shot Leonard Crochet. And it was said that they were pretty close to identifying the suspects. And all of a sudden they were accused of unlawful behavior, immediately fired and completely barred from future employment. So again, I'm not saying that this necessarily means that the police were involved. What I'm saying is, is that this is a rabbit hole. And when you start to research it, There's a lot of conspiracy theories here. Sure is. And depending on 
how much of this is, you know, the accuracy of, of some of this, there's a lot of fuel or there's a lot of smoke. Right. Right. Yeah. And usually when there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. Not to be too cliche about it, but. But you're right. But that's why you have so many people that believe that the police are trying to cover something up. So Gibbs, I want to talk a little bit about this place called the Boudreaux Inn. And this was just off I-10 in Jennings, which you already mentioned. I-10 was like a, a corridor for the drug and sex trade in Jefferson Davis Parish. All eight of the victims in this case were known to have had a a presence at the Boudreaux Inn, you know, meaning they were there on a regular basis. Now where the conspiracy part comes in, right? we got a lot of conspiracy theories here. We do. But where this one comes in is that allegedly the property records indicate that a field representative for a congressman was the owner of this Boudreaux Inn in the late 90s and up through the 2000s. And there's a lot of whisper and a lot of internet chatter. Yeah, that it it kind of afforded them some form of protection for some of the alleged illegal activities that occurred there. So Gibbs, I think the thought is, or, or, you know, if you want to go down that conspiracy rabbit hole is that there were powerful people that owned this Boudreaux Inn. There was a lot of drugs and sex, prostitution, maybe happening out of this place. So again, Gibbs, we know that the Jennings eight were afraid of somebody or something. And this is just one of those theories of who that might be, you know, a politically powerful person, maybe doing something they shouldn't be doing. And these women knew that could expose that, which would be dangerous for that person in power. Well, and it would be dangerous for people that could expose that person oh, in power. Absolutely. Potentially. You know, somebody in that line of power is not going to roll over for some teenage girl or young woman that's addicted to drugs. You know, I mean, it's they're going to if they if they have that in them they're going to take that person out to well, avoid anything that would harm or ruin in their mind the career that they work so hard to get to i mean this is all theory right yeah but, well but i think you're on the right track right so somebody that has a lot to lose whose back is up against the wall may be willing to do something to make sure that their livelihood is not threatened. And they, in their minds, I'm sure they're thinking, who's really going to notice? Because if she's a known user, 
in that community that people would just say that, you know, it was just a drug deal gone bad. It was just this. It wasn't something they could tie back to some powerful politician. Yeah. Again, all, all speculation, all rabbit holes, but it's all interesting. So in December of 2008, there was a task force that was formed and it consisted of 14 different federal, state, local law enforcement agencies. And they were basically, you know, obviously trying to solve these killings. Now, from the very beginning, I think they were working off the theory that they were searching for a serial killer. But there were other theories that the task force had. And one was that the victims had all been killed by different people. But were who but who were in the same circle and all had strong ties in that drug area. Right? So not not one person killing all eight, but maybe one killing a couple or eight different people killing each one, but that they were all part of this same running in this circle of drugs. Now, the other thing that the task force came up with was that they kind of zeroed in a little bit on this local strip club owner named Frankie Richard. Now, Frankie, you know, he was, he was heavily into drugs and he was kind of a fixture in Jennings, especially among the criminal element, I guess you would say. We're going to talk about him a little bit more when we get into suspects. Now, one of the big things that the task force uncovered was a series of witness interviews in which local law enforcement was implicated in the murders. Now, that's huge. It is. It's big. So they had statements from two female inmates who implicated the sheriff's office in disposing of evidence in the Christine Lopez case. It ended up that the sergeant who took the statements was forced out of his job. And basically these allegations were ignored by law enforcement. Now here again, Gibbs, is this a pattern? Are they forcing people out who are close to making strides in the investigation. Well, sure doesn't look good. No, it doesn't based on and I think that's the what research. the public has a problem with, right? They see things like this and some of the other ones we're getting ready to talk about and it definitely throws doubt in the wind. Right. So, I mean, what I guess one thing you have to, you know, to play devil's advocate were these people forced out of their jobs because they got too close or did they just lose their job for some other reason and they were upset and they came back and they said, you know, Hey, I, I was, I had all this information and I was close to, you know, blowing the lid clear off this case. Yeah. Or it could, I mean, it could be that they fraudulently wrote these, right? We don't know. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, the, the law office or the, the, uh, uh, law enforcement office could say, well, those were false statements. And he knew those those were false when he turned them in. I mean, you could go all different directions with those statements. Still interesting. Still interesting. That's right. 
So now we we really get into some allegations of misconduct by the police. And, you know, there's, there's one guy in particular, his name was William Gary and he was a criminal investigator and he was accused of buying a truck for $8,700 from an inmate. And I don't know how you buy a truck from an inmate, but he did. And he sold it for $15,500. That's quite a profit, right? He almost doubled his money. It's quite a profit. And the issue here is that it was alleged that this truck was what was used to transport the body of Christine Lopez and ultimately dispose of this body. Now, it was said that he also completely, you know, washed out the truck, got rid of any evidence before he sold it. Now, again, all alleged, but he was found guilty of an ethics violation and he paid a $10,000 fine over this. So some of this we know for sure happened. What we don't know is the part that's alleged about this truck being the truck that was used to dispose of Christine Lopez. Right. But the crazy part of this was he was found guilty of this ethics violation and then he got promoted. Over what? The evidence room. (laughs) Yeah, this is nuts, man. And, And this is what people have the biggest issue with around that area in Jennings and Jefferson Parish. How could this guy who was found guilty of messing around with potential evidence, probably get a promotion and not just that, but get promoted over the one thing that they seem to have a problem with, which is keeping track of evidence. That's crazy. So then you have to talk about Johnny Lassiter because Johnny Lassiter was the Jennings police chief and he ended up stealing $4,500 in cash, a bunch of pills, like 380 grams of cocaine, several pounds of marijuana, all from the evidence room, right? Again, they seem to have a big problem with their evidence room. Now, Lassiter was found guilty. He had to pay back the $4,500, and he actually got a five-year sentence. So this was real. I mean, he really, you know, served some time over this. But it was said that his action, because he he stole evidence, it ended up causing major damage to as maybe as many as 100 different cases. Right. Because obviously, if you've got somebody that you're putting on trial and all of a sudden the evidence that ties them in the case goes missing. Your case probably is going out the window. But it doesn't in there. Of course not. It can't. Right. So then you have Jefferson Davis, Deputy Paula Guillory. She was fired for mishandling evidence and money. The crazy thing about her is she was actually a member of this special task force at the time that 
she mishandled all this evidence and money. Yeah, Gibbs, I, I don't I don't doubt or I don't think there's any doubt that there's a lot of people in the area that are completely mistrustful of the police. Especially when you when you think about the families of these women. I mean, you know, there's statements that allege that witness statements were disregarded. Ev- some evidence may have been destroyed, right? These are these are all things that have been alleged. And I and I I know that there are some of the families of the eight women that are absolutely convinced that their family member that was ultimately killed knew something about the local police department who they felt was corrupt and the police department's dealings with the drug trade. And that's why the women were killed. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's that's one of the rabbit holes. Now, what did happen in 2009 is that the sheriff ordered that every investigator working the Jefferson Davis or Jennings 8 case, whatever you want to call it, had to be swabbed for DNA in response to all these accusations that were being levied against them. The problem is that the office has never commented or released the results of this DNA testing. So there's a so they started off with a really good PR solution, right? Hey, public, we're going to test everybody to make you feel better that we know that they didn't have anything to do with anything. So they test them, and then they say, uh, so we're not going to show you the results now. Well, anytime you do that, at least in my mind, you automatically think somebody's guilty. Why wouldn't you tell me that everything was clear then? No, I agree with you. I think it sounds like a great thing, but then when you don't release the results, yeah, it's like you're just creating more mistrust yeah, because people think you're hiding something. It's like take a lie detector test. I'm going to take a lie detector test to prove to you I didn't do it. And then I take it and you say, how'd it go? I said, I don't want to talk about it, <laughs> right? So what does that mean? The idea that police are somehow involved in eight killings is widely shared. And there's a disturbing pattern of police misconduct that supports the theory. Just last year, former Jennings Police Chief Johnny Lassiter, in office over the period of the killings, pled guilty to stealing money and drugs from the evidence room. A few years before that, Paula Guillory, a Jefferson Davis deputy, was fired after being accused of the same thing. Pattern of police misconduct directly torpedoed chances for a break in the case. Take Guillory, the fire deputy. When she was dismissed for mishandling evidence, she was a member of the task force. With the misconduct that's really marred this whole case, um, really from the get-go on the, on the part of law enforcement. Perhaps the most glaring missed opportunity can be found in this 2007 ethics violation by Jeff Davis Deputy Warren Gary, who at the time was the department's chief criminal investigator. Gary was fined $10,000 for buying a truck from a parish inmate, then immediately selling it for a handsome profit. The disappearance of the truck would prove to be a major blow. In a case with almost no physical evidence, witnesses had told deputies 
that a recent passenger in the truck was Kristen Lopez. Lopez was victim number three, and the truck reportedly was used to carry her body to this canal, where her badly beaten body was found. The loss of the truck meant the loss of potentially critical DNA evidence. So what happened to Gary after the ethics fine? He was promoted by Sheriff Edwards to run, of all things, the evidence room. Well, I think what it does is it goes a long way in really showing why there's so many people in that down in that area that do not trust the police. There's just been too many things in that department. You know, and it's not speculation, right? Some of these things are proven out that they really did happen. All right, Gibbs, you ready to get on to some suspects? Yeah, let's do it. So police have arrested or issued warrants for arrest of four people in connection with this case. Two people were held on murder charges for months before being released due to issues with evidence. Now, here we go. We're coming back to issues with evidence. They got a lot of issues with their evidence, Gibbs. I know they do. I don't want to harp on it, but daggone. All right, so we mentioned this guy earlier, but we got to talk about Frankie Richard because he's kind of a character. You know, he owns a, a strip club. He's suspected of of being a drug dealer admitted to being a you know on drugs he's crack cocaine addict and i think the the most damaging thing at least for him is that he has admitted to having sex with most if not all of the victims he's thought to have been the last person to have seen two of the victims Christine Lopez and Whitney Dubois. So there were two female inmates who stated that the sheriff's office disposed of some evidence in the Christine Lopez case. And they alleged that the evidence was discarded at the request of Frankie Richard. Richard was also investigated back in 1990 for stealing 300 pounds of marijuana from the sheriff's evidence room, along with the person that was then the chief deputy sheriff. I mean, what in blue blazes is going on down there? Yeah, what's happening in the Jennings there? I mean, is it just like the good old boys club where, you know, do whatever you want? Yeah, man, it, sound, it sounds like it is, you know, it sounds like. And again, some of this is proven. Some of this is alleged. Right. But there is a heck of a lot of alleging going on. Well, I guess if you're, if you, if you could say that my illegal activities is bringing in a lot of money and for you to turn the cheek or help me out getting rid of some evidence, I'm going to pay you X amount of dollars, which is greater than the money you make all year doing your police job. Now, this is just being, no, this is just theory. I I get what you're saying because that happens. That has happened over the history of people being police officers. Sure. What is it like, I guess, to have the finger pointed at you and, I guess, your family? It's not nice, you know. Here I am, 
in jail on a bogus rape charge, which I think was all put together to try to put the murders on it. Uh, here, I was never charged with a murder. They never charged me with it. Our sheriff gets on TV two days before the feds take the case over and say we have the killers in custody and put my name, I put my picture on TV. What do you say to those who call you a liar? I call them a liar. They're wrong and I've, I have an alibi for all night long of uh, when uh, Whitney died. What's your alibi? I had a friend that was sitting right here with me. Brit, uh, Whitney, I met Whitney right here in the driveway. She was going to my brother's camper. Uh, talked for a couple of minutes. She let, she went into into the camper. Me and my friend left. We went down here down the road where he stayed. And when we got back right here, Whitney was over there by the stop sign. That stop sign, that first stop sign right over there by uh, Hobart and McKinley. And that was the last time I seen Whitney. So that was Frankie Richard. Like I said, I, I think he's quite a character. He, he's got a pretty distinctive voice, that's for sure. So Frankie Richard and his niece, Hannah Connor, they were arrested in connection with Lopez's death. They were also questioned about the deaths prior to Lopez. Richard was reportedly seen with three of the victims in the last days of their lives. He was held on three quarters of a million dollar bond for 89 days. So obviously this is part of what he's talking about in this interview. You know, the charges were eventually dropped due to insufficient evidence. It probably walked out of the evidence room. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. (laughs) I don't know. Probably grew some legs and just walked out. But not just that. I mean, there were some conflicting witness statements as well. And this is where, you know, we really get back to Tracy Chasson. And we talked about her earlier. She was one of the witnesses against Frankie Richard. Now, if you remember, Tracy was Kristen's girlfriend. And she had said some things implicating Richard in some of the murders. But she later admitted that she had basically was just repeating a lot of the rumors that were going around, you know, on the street. And then she ultimately went back to the police and she recanted her statement. So it's part of why Frankie's a little, uh, you know, not real happy. Right. In, in that clip, because, you know, he claims he had nothing to do with it. He spent time in jail and the person that they relied on the most to put him in jail, later recanted. 
Now back to you, what you had said earlier about taking lie detector tests. Frankie Richard has said that he's taken a number of them, but he would never state the results. And that's kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, if you passed it, you passed it. If you didn't pass it, then you wouldn't talk about it. Right. I don't know why you wouldn't say anything. Or it was inconclusive. Either way, by you not saying anything about it, it means you didn't pass with with flying colors. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there's some doubt in the wind. We interviewed Frankie Richard, and he said that you were the one who basically told them a story about him that caused him to be arrested and named as a person of interest in the deaths of all these women. Oh, tell me what you think about that. Um, yes, ma'am, I did. Um, the detect- Jennings detectives wouldn't leave me alone, and they kept bothering me. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't. Every time somebody would say something, they'd come. So I just told them the story that I heard on the street so they would leave me alone. And I, took- I put um, Frankie Richard and Hannah and Hannah... Uh, Connor in jail and for about a week and I couldn't live with myself so, and I went back and told him that I lied that um I'm, that I just made up the story and I also put myself in jail for three months until they can find where I was the truth is I know nothing so in that clip you know you can hear Tracy talking about you know recanting her statements against Richard she also mentions being arrested she was arrested in May of 2007. She was booked on accessory after the fact charges. So apparently Tracy was the person who reported Kristen missing. And at some point, investigators believed that she knew where the body was when she made the report. So that's pretty serious. You know, why would she know where the body was? But again, you know, the charges against Tracy were dropped due to lack of evidence and conflicting statements, basically just like Richard and, and Hannah Connor. So Gibbs, there were two men that were charged with second degree murder in the Ernestine Patterson case. And Patterson was the second victim that was found. So the first man's name was Byron Chad Jones and the second was Lawrence Nixon. Now Lawrence was a cousin of Laconia Brown, who was the fifth victim found again, a lot of connections here. The case ultimately fell apart because it came out that the sheriff's office didn't test the Patterson crime scene until 15 months after Patterson's murder. So basically Gibbs, I think what they're saying is because you wait 15 months, how are you going to have any physical evidence against anybody? Yeah. So again, evidence comes into play. And why would you wait 15 months to test a known crime scene? That's a long time, man. I don't understand that. So, Again, I don't know if these guys had anything to do with anything, but at the end of the day, they, I think all they had was some people, and maybe they had some good stuff, people saying that, you know, had good evidence against them. But there's too many holes in the police procedure. This case would never stand up. It would just get ripped to shreds. 
And I'm sure they had to let these guys go. Absolutely. So Gibbs, something, you know, happened in February of 2014. There's actually a new victim found in a ditch near Lake Arthur. And it was noted that she had cocaine and methamphetamine in her system. And this woman was identified as Lacey Fontenot. She was 27 years old. She had, you know, a family. She had a daughter. But the, I guess the interesting part about this is that there was a lot of similarities. Yeah. To, I, I think a lot of people. The Jennings the, 8. Yeah, I think a lot of people in the community were thinking that maybe the killer was back, right? Because it's been, was it 2009 was the last one? And now here we're at 2014. But of course, you know, the police are pretty fast on it to try to push it down and say, no, this is, this has nothing to do with the Jennings eight. Well, I don't, I think that's the last thing they would want is for people to believe it is. But I think if you, you know, in the research that we did, there's a lot of people on the internet. Now you have to take all that with a grain of salt, right? But there's a lot of people that would say, something different. They would say there's too many similarities with this one to totally discount that it has anything to do with the others. But, you know, I mean, along with this one, we know that the local sheriff's department, the local city police and FBI are still working on trying to solve the Jennings eight along with this new victim. So, you know, hopefully, eventually something will come up. Yeah, I, I think this is this is one that could be solved. Uh, because I I think there's people out there that know information that maybe in the past or up till now have been scared to death to talk because they maybe have known what's happened to other people that have said something or, or knew too much. I agree. Unlike some of the ones we cover, I don't know. I guess in my gut, I feel like this is one that could be solved. Yeah. I think there's multiple people that really know what happened. Yes. And it's just a matter of, would they ever be brave enough to come forward or, you know, because they could be putting their life in jeopardy if they were to come forward. Yeah. And it could be more of a deathbed confession or tell all, you know? Yeah. But it would be solved. At it that would be point, solved. Yeah. Maybe. So I think one of the last things we have to talk about, super interesting, doesn't really have anything to do directly with, with the Jennings eight case. But it has to do with Warren Gary and Warren Gary was the guy that bought the truck and sold the truck and, and all that. So this is kind of a, just a, just a very strange twist and what happened. And this is recent. This is just the end of last year. So we're talking about Warren Gary and Warren Gary had a 17 year old 
grandson named Parker Gary. And Parker Gary ends up shooting and killing Warren Gary in his house. Basically, it looks like it all came down to like a motive of robbery. Probably needed money for drugs. I, I wouldn't doubt it. But man, to rob your own grandfather and then shoot him. It's pretty messed up. That's crazy. All right, Gibbs. So we got to work towards ending this one. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about law enforcement. We've talked a lot about the mistrust in law enforcement. And I do want to play this one last clip. I believe that they have made so many mistakes in chain of evidence, in simple investigative work that I think it's going to be hard for them to get a conviction. A lot of people wouldn't talk to law enforcement because they don't trust them. They've had a, a long past history with the people in law enforcement here of corruption, dirty tactics, you know, trickery. Uh, nobody would trust law enforcement. So basically some of the things we've been saying. Yeah. But one of the things he did said kind of maybe contradicts what you and I just said, which is, or maybe what I said, which is I thought this is one that was solvable which I still think it is. I th- I still think there are people out there that know who was involved in this, but it could be that even if they knew who did it, they may have a hard time getting a conviction because of what we know about the history of well, that's true. The the evidence in Jefferson Parish. But I think it would go a long way if people just knew who did it, even if they couldn't convince. I think I still think it would give some people some peace of mind knowing who did it. But, you know, I also want to say, you know, did this, did this police department mess up? Yes. With all the different issues that we had with evidence, but majority of the police departments do phenomenal jobs. Oh yeah. You know, and we're huge fans. I don't want anybody to take away. And, and to that end, I, we're not saying that everybody in this police department is corrupt or bad or, right. but obviously there's a lot of weird stuff going on down there. Absolutely. There's too much smoke. There's too much real, you know, tangible evidence. But again, I don't want to paint not only other law, all law enforcement. I don't even want to paint all of this Right. Law enforcement. You always have some bad apples. Yeah. So. But there's no doubt they've got major issues with evidence or they did. They I did. don't know yeah. what it's like now in 2017. They may have cleaned it up. They may have brought new well, people. There's a new in. sheriff in town. So new sheriff, literally, town. literally new sheriff in town. So. All right. Well, that is the story of the Jennings eight or the Jeff Davis eight, whichever you prefer. But it's another episode of True Crime All the Time Unsolved. So for Mike and Gibby, stay safe and keep your own time ticking.